0: He tēnei nā te reo irirangi o
1: this is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week we hear from local media folks mourning the way that Elon Musk trashed Twitter. But is it a case of good riddance to bad rubbish now? Or is the micro blogging habit of millions that powered it in the first place now a thing of the past anyway?
2: It, it was a tool we could get, I guess, citizen journalism. Um, That could still go through the process of kind of rigour that's required.
3: Flash forward to today, it's impossible to tell what is happening in Gaza. There is no possibility of absolutely trusting most of what you read, which is alarming.
1: Also, as the incoming government says it wants to grow our economy, one lobby group says we need to look to another island nation that's become twice as rich as us in just one generation. But is that really so? And before all that... The news media like to say they are the eyes and ears of the public, but so far political leaders are turning a deaf ear to their questions about how they'll form a new government. So, how are the media handling the silent treatment? Normally, New Zealand First is the second strongest party in terms of, uh,
4: numerically in terms of a coalition. Uh, this is, uh, this is, I think, the first time that that sort of be, be the third banana. But no, you know, I the, argue the they're a bigger third banana than the second
2: Scott. one. I imagine, though, <laughs> Liam.
4: Well, yeah, that's right.
1: That was Liam here, political pundit from the right, on 9 to noon's politics slot last Monday on RNZ National with Catherine Ryan on the topic that was preoccupying political reporters ever since the election's final results the previous Friday, barring recounts. How will the next government finally take shape? And while they pondered there which were the biggest bananas in the current coalition bunch, the pundit from the left, Gareth Hughes, was thinking of the Greens in a previous one. Basically, Winston Peters locked the Greens locked out of any ministerial position.
3: He absolutely locked them out. And said this is And,
1: you know, that's exactly what he is in the position to do again, 20 years on to David Seymour. On Morning Report that same morning, Pundit Shane Pooh was getting confused about the furniture.
5: They will want a table at the, decis- at the decision-making table.
1: But News Hub's political editor Jenna Lynch had other furniture in mind once those final election results were in. Winston Peters is no longer a nice-to-have. He was effectively a security blanket before. Now they need him to build the bed. But there were supposed to be three in that bed, and were they even talking to each other? But problem,
4: these two are far from comfortable bedfellows. Act has been trying to call New Zealand first for a hui. They've been left hanging. David Seymour says he hasn't heard from Peters.
3: Uh, No, I haven't. But, you know, we welcome discussion because ultimately uh, the voters are king and queen in an election.
1: And speaking of sovereigns, NZME's Fran O'Sullivan invoked a classic love triangle in her Herald column last weekend.
2: How does Christopher Luxon skirt the inevitable Camilla versus Diana Trapp? When it comes to managing strategic competition around his cabinet table, they should of course start by getting a room and getting down to business.
1: Though with hindsight, none of that trio you'd think would want to be Diana. And was getting a room going to be a goer anyway if they couldn't even hook up by phone? David Seymour had revealed that he'd reached out to New Zealand first after election night by text, but hadn't had a reply in kind. Or had he?
3: Of course, we'll have to talk. Uh, If you want to get into the technicalities of how phones work, then you can. Um, But I don't know (laughs) if that's the level of debate that New Zealanders want.
1: Now, Winston Peters had said that he thought the initial text might have been a fake, bringing a brickbat from an unconvinced Audrey Young at the Herald.
2: It would have taken two seconds to find out, not five days.
1: But how many more days would pass by for them to actually get talking about forming a new government? On Monday on TVNZ's Breakfast Show, the host Anna Burns-Francis summed up the soap opera so far this way.
3: The speculation the much-rumoured meeting is on its way, but will National Leader and incoming Prime Minister Christopher Luxon be in the room? He joins us now. Good morning, Mr Luxon. Good
2: morning, good to be with you. Have
3: you spoken to Winston Peters over the weekend?
2: I've spoken to both leaders over the weekend, yeah.
3: Did you tell Winston to save David's phone number on his phone?
1: (laughs) And Winston Peters was still pretending that the media doorstepping him didn't exist, arriving in the capital for FaceTime with his own caucus, though one bystander did give those reporters an earful at the airport.
2: Are you worried that the ACT
4: party is going to hold up negotiations and you aren't going to be able to get this done quickly? In terms of negotiations, it's the
3: pension age. Is that a bottom line
0: for you?
1: But Winston Peters did give an interview to The Platform and its founder and host, Sean Plunkett. Now, what was billed as Winston Peters' first media interview since the election, barring post-election stand-ups with reporters, they aired plenty of their mutual mistrust of the mainstream media.
5: The media then speculate and can get in the middle of things and and stuff things. That's well, the tragedy of it all because all they're doing out there is misinforming everybody after the election, like their mainstream media were doing before the election. And mm. now I'm not engaging in that. I'm talking to you because you're asking frank and open questions mm. that need to be answered. But those things that they're going to gaslight us? or have a gotcha moment, they're just wasting their time when it comes to Winston Peters and New Zealand First.
1: And when Sean Plunkett gently inquired when Winston Peters just might start negotiating with the other political leaders, he didn't get much on that from the New Zealand First leader. Uh, would it be
5: unreasonable for the country to think that next week, by Friday or of next week, we'd have something workable, we'd have the broad sweep of this figured out? Would that be your expectation or your hope? Well, the, the trouble with Sean is when you make any comment these days, if it's made in good faith, it is used against you. You know, no good.
1: Yeah. Time. Now, also being asked that kind of question often was the National Party campaign manager Chris Bishop. Here he was again on TBNZ's Q&A. What's your position? I'm not going to put a time frame on it, but um, you know, there is really good will, really good faith from everybody. Now that left unacknowledged questions about political bottom lines hanging all week, along with the portfolios that National might have to hand to act in New Zealand first. But Christopher Luxon told reporters this week that he wants to get cracking, and Newsroom's Joe Moyer pointed out Luxon had already put an unofficial deadline on the talks by saying he wouldn't go to the APEC summit next week in the US if the talks aren't complete. But on New Sub Nation, political editor Jenna Lynch didn't seem at all confident that Luxon, or herself, would be going to San Francisco.
4: I don't know. I'd love to know. I've got travel plans to go, so but I'm not going if Christopher Luxon's not going. Let me know.
1: Okay, Chris. <laughs> let Jenna know. That'd be great.
4: The current government, the uh, Prime Minister Chris Hipkins, would be, need to be re-sworn in to continue on as a caretaker government. Now Christopher Luxon told the Electoral Commission it should have been working 24/7 to get the votes counted. One wonders if he is holding himself to the same standard.
1: Now, that same day, Winston Peters did also sit down with the NBR's political editor, Brent Edwards, and they shed a little light on what might happen next, this time with only the mildest of digs at the media. And you'll see that people are now in New Zealand First will be talking to ACT members
5: as well. But these are all done in a timely way, not because some mainstream media who didn't want to know who our name was before the election now want to prescribe
1: what we do after it. And in that pleasingly placid encounter, Brent Edwards also asked Mr Peters if he now regretted the insults he'd made that made the whole thing harder.
5: The, that's the nature of politics. Uh, people expect to be forgiven uh, for the premature or uh, perhaps um, undiplomatic positions they took.
0: And you're in a forgiving mode? <laughs>
5: When I say that, my colleagues know that uh, the public expect in a democracy uh, that there'll be a stable and government formed and as fast as possible without selling in things down the drain, so to speak. So it's uh, complex, yet in many parts of it are simple in
1: that uh, final outcome. And we'll see if that complex but simple philosophy of Winston Peters there does extend to an acknowledgement that he's also been undiplomatic to the media and that he's willing to form a stable arrangement with them for the sake of the government as well. New Zealand First and ACT Party chiefs of staff did meet the next day to prep for more substantial talks to come. Tonight on One News, the Prime Minister-elect says coalition talks
0: are ramping up. Are progressing well. But 26 days since the general election, an admission, a crucial part of the negotiating, is yet to take place. While National ACT and New Zealand First still haven't sat down together, coalition talks are advancing, with Winston Peters and David Seymour chatting face-to-face.
2: So would you say we're past half-time in a rugby match?
3: Um, oh, we're definitely in the second half. There's no question about that. Um, uh, we come into the second half and uh, I think the result uh, is getting near.
1: But while they wait for meaningful news of progress towards a new government, NewsHub copied the British tabloid paper that live-streamed a lettuce last year to see if that would decay faster than the leadership of Prime Minister Liz Truss. Though News Hub has chosen a much more robust coalition cauliflower, which will probably last a lot longer, a sign, perhaps, though, that they don't expect any deals to be done soon. Now, one of the areas where there will have to be political compromises between those coalition parties is economic policy. On Scoop.co.nz, columnist Gordon Campbell said Winston Peters' views on the economy, international trade and foreign investment predate Rogernomics, and he opposes neoliberal views that are backed not only by the National Party and the ACT Party, but also the business community. And on his website Politic, veteran political journalist Richard Harmon also said National will have to tread carefully between very different views of how to grow New Zealand's economy. And he pointed to a freshly published report about that from that New Zealand initiative think tank, a report called Irish Secrets. And Richard Harmon said there was one set of figures that stood out in that report in 1990 New Zealand's GDP per head was just under 15,000 US dollars slightly ahead of Ireland's but last year Ireland's had jumped to 127,000 US dollars but ours was only 52,000 stark stuff The Irish Secrets report was the result of 3 dozen senior business leaders all members of the New Zealand initiative, touring Ireland for a week in June. And on their return, the chair of the initiative, Roger Partridge, wrote this in the Herald about what he called prosperity's most meaningful measure, GDP per capita. The Emerald Isle leapt forward, leaving the land of the long white cloud in its wake.
0: Ireland now sits below the US at 6th, while New Zealand languishes at
1: 20th. And back in August, in another report called Benchmarking New Zealand's Economic Performance Against Ireland's, the New Zealand initiative repeated similar GDP stats. And the initiative's executive director, Oliver Hartwich, wrote this in the Australian newspaper.
0: As of today, depending on which statistic you use, Ireland is about twice as
1: rich as New Zealand. And similar stats were aired by entrepreneur Sir Ian Taylor during the Stuff Leaders debate in the election campaign just last month.
5: In 1990, our gross domestic product, which nobody has talked about today, was the same as Ireland's. Let's look at the footsteps through to 2023. Ireland is 529 billion, New Zealand is 250 billion. Nobody is talking about it.
1: Well, the New Zealand Initiative is now talking about that after the publication of its Irish Secrets Report in the foreword of that report, the head of the delegation to Ireland, former Fonterra executive Fraser Wineray, also highlighted Ireland's GDP per capita surge from 1990 onwards. But then Winneray added this. From the outset, it's important to note that Ireland's GDP figures should be
0: treated cautiously. The presence of multinationals, tax strategies, contract manufacturing, asset depreciation and other statistical nuances can skew these numbers.
1: But that skewing impact of those post-1990 stats is not mentioned from the outset in those New Zealand initiative media commentaries we've heard, which also bulk up the Irish Secrets report released last week. And coincidentally, the same day the initiative published Irish Secrets, The Economist magazine published a piece headlined, What's Weird About Ireland's GDP?, The Economist said that Ireland's generous corporate tax regime has made it a hub for about 1,500 multinational tech and pharmaceutical companies. These generate much of their income in Ireland and inflate Ireland's GDP, the Economist said, but they also funnel that money into their headquarters abroad. And these incomes should not be fully counted when measuring the size of Ireland's economy, according to The Economist. The way that multinational firms accounted for their assets and profits created increases so big that they even warped the averages right across the Eurozone. As an example, when research and development spending was counted as capital investment rather than expenditure, Irish-based multinational companies increased the country's capital stock by $330 billion US dollars in one year, and that was a 57% year-on-year increase. In 2018, the IMF calculated that a quarter of Ireland's GDP growth could actually be attributed to global sales of iPhones because the maker Apple in other countries paid the Irish unit of Apple to use its intellectual property. Now, the economist said, with all this in mind, the best available measure of the Irish economy is a version of gross national income modified to account for those distortions and the economist said that that now stands at 265 billion US dollars for Ireland now that's better than New Zealand's gross national income of about 248 billion US dollars but it doesn't make Ireland anywhere near twice as rich as us Now all of that doesn't mean that Ireland's inward investment hasn't made it much better off since 1990. And there's other interesting stuff about Ireland's economic progress in the New Zealand Initiative's report about productivity and education, which we certainly could learn from. But Ireland's economy also has problems that are pretty similar to some of ours like unaffordable housing, infrastructure deficits and immigration volatility and telling people and policy makers here that we've become half as rich as Ireland on the basis of stark statistics which are essentially not compatible is surely not part of the discussion they really want to promote. Last weekend we mentioned that the United Kingdom's Prime Minister Rishi Sunak had hosted a summit on the dangers of AI and it was held at Bletchley Park, the site of the celebrated Enigma code-breaking effort back in World War II. The UK government said that they hoped the presence of the world's richest ever entrepreneur, Elon Musk, would attract international attention, and it did. And with an interview with the UK Prime Minister live-streamed on the social media platform that he owns, X, formerly known as Twitter, he made headlines as well having
0: a referee is a good thing.
1: And if you look at any sports game,
0: there's always a, a referee. And, and nobody's suggesting, I think, to have a sports game without one. Um, and, and I think that's the, the right way to think about this, is for, um, for government to be a, a referee to make sure the sportsmanlike conduct and, and, and that the public safety is, is, is addressed.
1: And two days later, Elon Musk told the podcaster Joe Rogan he bought Twitter to save it from an existential mind virus, though exactly what that meant wasn't clear over the two hours and 40 minutes of their conversation. But Musk himself seems to have sped up Twitter's extinction. He's made a series of changes over the past year which have slashed the company's financial value by more than half and destroyed most of its value to its users, including the media. Over the previous 15 years, Twitter was much used by the media because it turned out to be a really powerful way of spreading and sharing news online and also commenting on it. Last Wednesday, a bunch of media folks met in Auckland to host Awake for Twitter and Bury the Bird. The Bird being Twitter's distinctive logo, until Mr Musk replaced it with an ugly black letter X. The organiser was Vaughan Davis, the founder of marketing agency The Goat Farm, who used the platform itself to lure people to the event last week. And really, it's
0: just our opportunity to say... um... Thanks, well done, farewell to a social media platform which I think gave a lot of us an awful lot over the last
1: 15 years. And we'll hear more from him on that in a minute. Media Watchers Hayden Donnell was there at the Bury the Bird event in Auckland last week where he also asked two local social media pioneers on the panel that night, former Media Watch host Russell Brown and the spin-off's Anna Rafferty Connell, is it really game over now for the platform that Musk has mangled into X?
2: My first moment of realising that it was good for news was the Arab Spring. And it was partially because you were getting a range of different kind of experiences that were maybe not being reported in the mainstream media but came to be reported in the mainstream media. So it it was a tool where you could get, I guess, citizen journalism that could still go through the process of kind of rigour that's required in terms of Reporting, And I think it's been a really useful place for on-the-ground coverage. It's been a useful place for finding sources, for finding stories. Twitter leaned a lot, quite heavily, on, I guess, the culture of news and the culture of journalism in in its foundational days.
4: I vaguely remember, as a Herald Online journalist, reading it just to find out what people were talking about, what people were angry about what was
3: happening in a live sense and it has that has gradually eroded. Yeah, absolutely. The, one of the great virtues of Twitter was that it was a live medium, whether it was just watching a live TV show or whether it was a significant event like the Indian Ocean tsunami, like the tube um, terrorist attacks in London and then the earthquakes in Christchurch. Where people actually acquitted themselves pretty well as citizen journalists it looked like this might work. Um, uh, Flash forward to today, it's impossible to tell what is happening in Gaza. There is no possibility of absolutely trusting most of what you read, which is alarming.
4: We, we talked a lot tonight at event, Bury the Bird. We're now downstairs in an alcove, <laughs> grotty old concrete stairs <laughs> we talked a lot about different stuff that might have been responsible for the downfall of the platform there was donald trump There was obviously elon musk who has degraded it in multitude of ways but can we really pin it on any one thing there's as you just mentioned the algorithms the main
3: character syndrome the way that it facilitates bullying well oddly enough i was wondering while we were sitting there talking maybe it's the case that that no online social forum can last and this thing has to, be, has, has to be reinvented fairly regularly because, uh, I mean, I've been on the internet long enough to have been a Usenet user. Um, I presided over some pretty lively forums on my own website, Public Address. That, that was a really great place for a while, but the moderation duties got too much, and then everything moved over to places where there is no moderation and no-one's responsible, and it got worse. I don't quite know where we go, but I still want to chat to people online. I enjoy it. Is Twitter
4: any use to a news organisation now, for its journalists and for the advancement of its brand?
2: Look, I think it still functions to a certain degree for plenty of journalists as something of a shortcut to, I guess, real-time events. I guess the irony for me is that Twitter built its back to a certain extent, on being a real-time current affairs news platform. It has been a platform used very heavily by journalists and media. I guess the main reason media might use a platform like Twitter now, which might be around putting what you've written or created in front of an audience and then getting them to go and look at it, you know, I think that's probably massively diminished or never never was great. I don't
4: think it was ever a great source of traffic and NPR famously left it recently and they've got, their traffic went down 1% I think. Did we always overvalue it?
2: We always overcooked it slightly in terms of it being a reflection of what people in this country cared about. Uh, There was a period where there was kind of it felt like there was a direct pipeline between Twitter and what would appear on the homepage.
4: Uh, And its death in many ways possibly stop distorting journalists' perceptions of what the country cares about? I'd hope so.
3: Yeah, I I think there are still going to be newsworthy things said and done on Twitter and other social media platforms, but there's certainly no sense that somewhere you have to be as a journalist. That said, um, I have particular specialist subject areas, drug policy, urbanism, things like that, There are networks of people that are on Twitter that I don't know how to find anywhere else. I mean, I spend much more time on Blue Sky now, but I can't replicate those networks. So it is still a really good way of getting up close to expertise. Then again, there's a very large side of Twitter that is utterly hostile to expertise. Is the Gaza conflict kind of emblematic of its
4: decreasing utility as a source of news?
3: Absolutely. It's, it's like, it's like the, the ultimate fog of war. Um, something flashes up and you do not know whether it's completely fake, whether it's exaggerated. It's really hard to engage with what's happening when you don't know whether what you're seeing is true. And is that just Elon Musk's
4: fault? Fake stuff has always afflicted the internet. Is it just an, a symptom of advancing technology that stuff is easier to fake? Is it Elon Musk or is it
3: us? Well, I, th- I think one thing you can definitely blame Musk for is ruining the verification system. That actually was it yeah, did provide a degree of trust. Now uh, he's created a situation, a situation where anyone with a blue tick is not to be trusted. He's completely inverted it. Every single decision he makes makes the user experience worse.
2: Journalists, writers love a narrative, and it is I guess it's quite nice to be able to talk about the Arab Spring as the genesis of kind of real-time current affairs on Twitter and now Gaza and what's happening there as sort of the death of Twitter in terms of that particular utility. I don't think you can talk about it as something that was just kind of destined. I think there have been hands um, involved in shaping what Twitter has become. And I guess where and how it's become a magnet for um, certain kinds of people with certain agendas. But I think the removal of headlines from news stories, you know, that might be something that people might think about journalists having a bit of a whir about their headlines going missing. But actually, if you think about the fact that people weren't really clicking on news stories, at least if they saw them on Twitter with a headline, there was some sense of context being delivered on that platform. And... That's kind of gone now and you've also just got this very strange hierarchy of authority which is dependent on whether or not you're prepared to pay money to subscribe.
4: Is part of the death of social media, I mean it's Elon Musk, it's Donald Trump and maybe Trump in particular, but it's sort of this realisation that might makes right. And if you can say something forcefully enough and loudly enough, Donald Trump was the master of this... And that's really what's eroded its
3: utility as a news source and probably as a, a nice place to be. I mean, there's nothing wrong with an argument. People have been arguing on the internet since it was the internet. That's quite fun. But it does feel different now. It's harder to know exactly who you're arguing with than what you're arguing about.
2: You ended up with social media platforms and I think it's really important that we draw a kind of a line and a distinction between something like Twitter and say for example something like TikTok. I don't think TikTok is dying I don't think it's dead I think it's thriving Um, but it's a completely different kettle of fish. The thing is is that you ended up with numbers games there where you could amass a following in ways that we perhaps have not been able to do before uh, which rivaled the reach of mainstream media and so you immediately created a kind of you know there wasn't just one pillar of truth anymore there were now distinct and different realities that you could opt into if you wanted to or not any platform where you are able to amass more followers than some quite large mainstream media outlets means you are essentially a rival to them
4: Just lastly, do you have any predictions for the future? Are we heading into a blessedly post-social media age? Are we going to reinvent Twitter? Is there something else coming along?
2: So I don't think so. I think Twitter specifically belongs to a particular era of social media networking. I'm delighted if people are finding their bliss on other platforms like Blue Sky or Mastodon or God forbid Threads. But that was of a time and place. I think what We see now is the rise of video in an enormous way, in a way that's kind of all-consuming and also an entire generation's mode of communication and everybody can be a creator and everybody can reach a variety of people and it's kind of fragmented in a way that Twitter never was. And I think that particular era of social media networking is probably done.
4: Easy for you to say, Anna, you already deleted your Twitter account... Uh, Russell, what a bummer for you. You've spent years building up 75,000 followers. You must be kind of grieving if this is the end.
3: Less than I thought, actually. Um, Because I was there early and because I'm quite good at it, uh, I ended up being one of the four accounts recommended to new users. There was a period where my follower count was going up by thousands a week. The thing about Twitter is I think it is now past the point where it can evolve, most of what we think about as its core functionality things like retweets things like hashtags they were all created by its users and the people running it responded to that musk has completely inverted that and now he's handing down these edicts that make it objectively worse and i think that's where it's going to run into a wall i appreciate your time i hope the man who cough gets better <laughs>
5: hey.
1: There was former Media Watch host and current listener columnist Russell Brown, and also we heard there from Anna Rafferty Connell, the head of audience at the spin-off, and they were talking there to Media Watchers Hayden Donnell at Bury the Bird, an event in Auckland chewing over what went wrong with Twitter. Now that event was instigated by a former fan of the platform, Vaughan Davis, who's the founder of the marketing agency The Goat Farm, and formerly the host of a radio show all about technology and social media, Sunday Social. So I asked Vaughn Davis, what did Twitter, now called X, really do for us that any other online service didn't? Most
0: social media uh, channels before then and, and since have kind of been about connecting either to celebrities or following celebrities or connecting with people you used to know, like you know Facebook and, and LinkedIn sort of uh, trades on that. Twitter was different. What Twitter did was gave us the opportunity to connect to people because of what they said, what they thought, and who they really were, and that was pretty
1: powerful. It really developed into something whose whose USP was micro-blogging. Was that the key to it? That you know, in a fairly short range of characters, you could actually express something beyond a headline sophistication, but you know, less than an essay. So you could do it pretty rapidly. That was a key uh, thing in in yeah. having its audience swell and develop into millions really rapidly?
0: Yeah, I think it made it easy and difficult at the same time. Limiting things to 140 characters meant, oh gosh, I don't have to record a video or some audio or write some big long essay. I've just got to come up with a little digital haiku. And the flip side of that, it, it was sometimes challenging, you know, to encapsulate your thought into those 140 characters. And certainly people, you know, who, who worked or spent their recreation as writers enjoyed that challenge. And I think that drew people to it as well.
1: And what sort of communities did it create if collections of people that perhaps other tech apps didn't? because I ask that because you know journalists often say uh, and drop into their copy you know that sometimes journalists have to remember the world isn't Twitter. these are actually communities drawn from a relatively small pool of online users when you think of the biggest applications and services like you know Facebook and things like that.
0: Yeah, it was always really important to remember that, uh, you know, Twitter was not the world and it wasn't even the online world. You know, it was heavy on tech, it was uh, heavy on media, it was heavy on politics. So if you're a politician, let's say, going there and, and that was your view of the world, it was it was a very skewed one. But if you were within those worlds and wanted to connect to other people and, you know, media, tech, politics, um, the sort of the, the geeky creative fringe of the New Zealand online world, it was a great place to be.
1: Musk gets a lot of the blame from people he's become the lightning rod for it the changes he's made don't seem to have made it uh, any better uh, in fact made it a lot worse in a lot of ways and do you blame him specifically or was the tide perhaps going out on that platform even before he took it over about a year ago
0: I think the tide was going out on Twitter before Musk took it over. Uh, You know, a few people have pointed towards Trump, Putin, you know, that that kind of era Brexit as a time when uh, Twitter became a space where people were able to polarise people and, and, and put people into tribes. What he's trying to do really is just go, okay, we've got this asset for whatever reason I bought it. How do I uh, How do I find a profitable future for it? Because it's really never had a profitable past.
1: And we heard Anna Rafferty-Connell uh, talking to Hayden earlier saying, and, and Russell Brown, m- making the point that almost none of the information you see from Gaza, the Israel conflict that's going on right now, is reliable or often credible. It's just impossible to know what's propaganda, what isn't, because the moderation's just gone. And... Anna pointing out, you know, what a lot of people started paying attention to it in another sort of flashpoint in that part of the world, the so-called Arab Spring. Uh, do, do you see it that way, that it's just become less and less of a reliable tool for, you know, sharing that what people used to call citizen journalism, that user-generated yeah. content that, um, that could be created and shared almost instantly and was pretty valuable?
0: I think all, all digital media and social media channels have become a little less reliable than they once were. You know, there was a, there was a time when really they were just an extension of the real world platforms they were built off. Um, and I think what it needs is for consumers of the media to now take on a lot more of that responsibility to decide for themselves uh, what is trustworthy and what is not, rather than leaving it to the editors. And I think that's a shift and I don't think it's going to, it's not going to wind back.
1: Yes, when people talk about the struggles of legacy media, uh, the tide going out on them in the, in the digital world, they're thinking of like maybe broadcasters that have been around for maybe 50, 60 years or newspapers that could have been around for uh, 150 years or something like that. But has Twitter kind of gone through a, a life cycle where it's become a kind of legacy type product in the digital world within a little more than 15 years?
0: Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, Anna made the point. Uh, you know, she she used the word error, and I think that's a, that's a great word. Uh, and I think that that type of community-based, benign, um, you know, happy, clappy uh, social media that Twitter was at its best, you know, those days might have gone, and we've moved on from that into the uh, the more perhaps cynical, polarised social media environment we find ourselves in today. But, you know, for me, Bury the Bird was uh, a bit like a good funeral. You know, it was a a celebration of the good things in in the life of the departed as much as a a mourning for the the death.
1: Yeah, it isn't quite all over, though, is it? Because like legacy organisations, there are a lot of users that, you know, even if it's not what it was and not as useful to them, they'll stick around on it. It's like Russell Brown said, it just can't evolve anymore. It's kind of had it. Um, do you think it is now definitely a slow decline, or is there a possibility it could um, it could revive in some way?
0: Yes, yeah, sh- short of quantum changes from uh, the new ownership, I think it is in slow decline. And part of that, and Russell touched on this, is the creation of the platform has passed from the users to the owners. You know, a lot of the great things about Twitter were made by the people who – I'm going to say lived there uh, for their own benefit. And now changes and developments on the platform are being made by the owner for the benefit of the owner.
1: So you used it in real life uh, for tweet ups and getting together with people, you know, outside the digital realm, like Bury the Bird. You know, you're you're awake for Twitter. Um, Are are you personally sad? You're going to miss it or it's just okay on to the next thing, Uh, creative destruction, not necessarily a bad thing? I am sad,
0: uh, and this is you know this is why I threw a funeral um, for the perhaps only 5,000, 10,000 people in New Zealand who really deeply engaged with it. It was a great moment in history. You know, we made personal connections, we made business connections, we learned things, we got close to people we'd never otherwise get close to, and, and that time has passed. What's going to come next? Don't know. Um, Are we just aging out of it? And is, you know, TikTok and Instagram and threads and that offering the same thing to the users that are there right now? I don't think so. Uh, But, you know, always have an optimistic eye to what comes next and always stay curious.
1: Yeah, so when you said you could meet people, form communities that could spill over into real life the way you used it, but did did you actually feel any closer to the likes of, uh, you know, Sam Neill or uh, Stephen Fry, you know, these heavy users of the Internet who are prominent on the platform. Um, did, did you really feel connected to them if you said something and they responded in in text?
0: I think we all did. And I, and I think, uh, you know, speaking to some of those people who wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't otherwise connect to they felt closer to their public, if you like, uh, than, than they would have previously. You know, wind back 50 years, you know, the Beatles are in the press a lot at the moment. Um, you know, if you're a Beatles fan in 1965, you'd write them a letter and nothing would ever come back. But if you're a, uh, you know, a Neil Finn fan in, you know, 2015, you'd see him on Twitter, you'd say, hey, I really love that lyric that really got to me, man. That was really cool. And you'd say, oh, thanks. And you have a bit of a chat about it. And that was that kind of a magical time. I think it was really special.
1: Yeah, easier to sort of tweet at celebrities, isn't it, um, rather than have to chase their car like the Beatles, you know, screaming and wrenching your hair and hoping the car will stop.
0: Yeah, the the, <laughs> the hard day. If they remade a Hard Day's Night in two thousand and twenty-three, I don't think it'd be quite as exciting.
1: <laughs> Indeed. Well, finally, Vaughan, I can recall you used to have a radio show that was all about tech and social media. I can remember you saying, for example, that during the controversy that about hashtag Oscars so white. Do you remember that? Uh, Oscar yeah. was, was was apparently oblivious to the fact that very few people of color were nominated or winning awards and they had to sort of check themselves and say, oops, do we have a bit of a bias here? Huge backlash against uh, the Oscars. I remember you saying at that time, look, this is the internet age. The internet can create something to replace that pretty quickly. I mean, in that instance, it didn't necessarily happen. But do you still believe that, so the things that made Twitter uh, and the good parts of that can maybe... Live on in one of the replacements in the other alternative sites, Blue Sky, whatever, that are being created to satisfy perhaps the same online habit.
0: Yeah, I think there's a need. I think there's a goodness in people. I think there's a, a hunger to positively connect and, and support each other and, and form communities. And that's that's never changing. You know, the internet comes and goes, but those human needs never change. So, you know, if someone comes up with a platform and there was talk in the room, what if someone came up with a, a New Zealand Twitter, you know, a kereru or whatever it is, um, you know, either locally or globally, uh, and it, and it strikes that right chord? Yeah, I think it could all happen again.
1: That was social media enthusiast Vaughan Davis, who's the founder of the marketing agency The Goat Farm, and he was the organiser of Bury the Bird, which brought together media folks in Auckland last week to lament the rise, fall and demise of Twitter, now known as X, under the mismanagement of Elon Musk. That's all we have for you on Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media with Midweek Media Watch after the news at 10 next Wednesday on Nights with Mark Leishman. And then we'll be back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.